Someone once said, "Marriage is what brings us together today." That's right. In case you didn't get it from the name of the episode, this month we're talking about marriage. Marriage is an institution. If you're not a social scientist, you might think, "How is marriage an institution?" I thought institutions were really old buildings and horror movies that are most definitely haunted. Well, let's define our terms. The Oxford Bibliography has two definitions for institution. One, stable patterns of behavior that define, govern, and constrain action. Two, an organization or other formal social structure that governs a field of action. Marriage is most definitely a formal social structure and a pattern of behavior in society. Cultural anthropology tells us that humans who bond and create kinship ties are able to compete and survive. Throughout history, this idea has been formalized between bonded couples as marriage. Simple. Episode is over. Or is it? Like every topic covered on the show, marriage is complicated. And for the first time ever, I'm going to pull in two sociologists to discuss the issue at the same time. That's right. I'm Matt Sedlar, and it's a good old-fashioned roundtable discussion as sociology ruins marriage. Okay, well, this is this is exciting because this is the first time I've ever I've ever done a, a live discussion with more than one person. <laughs> Usually, it's just one person on phone or Zoom. So, if we could just do a brief go around and introduce yourself, um, whoever wants to go first. I am Dr. Shannon Davis. I currently serve as the associate dean for faculty and academic affairs at George Mason University, Korea. I previously spent 15 years at the U.S. campus of George Mason University as a faculty member of the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. My background is in family sociology. Uh, I've studied division of household labor, marriage, divorce, relationships, and uh, my most recent book, Why Who Cleans Counts, came out by Policy Press in 2020, just before the pandemic hit when it probably got real frustrating to be locked at home with someone who wouldn't clean. (laughs) I will say that my household thankfully is one where uh, the, the cleaning has historically been shared. Um, Not so much with the kids, but I recognize that that's always a work in progress with children. But uh, my household is not one that has yielded uh, as many frustrations as, funny enough, a lot of family sociologists um, that I've talked to have found. And I'm Courtney Bell, and I am a PhD student at George Mason University. I'm in my second year. Um, And I actually transitioned from a previous career in theater and film Um, I had in 2009 started making this documentary about marriage because at the time uh, I was living in California, Proposition 8 was sort of all the the news, sort of the dominating story. And my partner and I were sort of like, okay, there's all this talk about who can and can't get married, but isn't it something like 60% of the people who do get married get divorced? So what is this institution even supposed to be? And like, what, who's doing it and how good is it? And should it still be happening? And so we embarked on this journey and 
we interviewed just tons of people, including Stephanie Coons, who's a really prominent marriage historian. We've talked to Helen Fisher, who's a biological anthropologist who talks about brain chemistry and love and all of that stuff. Um, we talked to a divorce attorney. We talked to a prenup attorney. We talked to polyamorous couple. We talk- so I learned a whole lot of different perspectives and found it just fascinating. And when I transitioned into sociology, that was sort of my way in was I started this project. It is unfinished. I have over a hundred hours of footage. <laughs> One day I'll edit it all and make a documentary because I also am super into documentaries being useful tools for sociologists. We can have a whole other podcast on that, but that's, that's where sort of my background kind of began into studying this. Okay. And we have the not small task of discussing, this is kind of the groundwork, the base discussion is how has marriage been defined over the centuries and what does it mean today, which is, like I said, a not small task. So I just wanted to start, I realize this is a little too intro to sociology for some people, but maybe we can briefly discuss the origins of marriage. So I have been reading Stephanie Kuntz's Marriage of History as well. I got it from the library, go libraries. And when talking about the Middle Ages, she says marriage was mainly used in upper classes as a method for transferring wealth and establishing networks for political gain. Uh, But with the peasantry, you know, people live together. What kind of what? No, with the peasantry there, people didn't get married. There was no. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is they live together in what we would think call today is like common law marriages, right? People who just live together. Um, there wasn't a ceremony when people did get married. It was, well, I live with this woman or guy, so we're a thing. And then they could just walk away and say, we're not a thing anymore. <laughs> um, so I, I guess the, even though I've read some of that, um, how did it move beyond this original purpose and to the peasantry and why? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, thinking again, you know, one of uh, Stephanie's more recent books, Stephanie Coote's more recent books, Love, uh, a History or How Love Conquered Marriage, um, really does talk about uh, this transition of how marriage became something that meant something else, right? That as cultures transformed, that marriage began to be seen as something that was, in fact, valuable to society, valuable to communities. And if we think about the United States, right? So let's let's ignore other cultures. I'm so sorry to say I'm going to do that right now, but that's what we do sometimes, right? We focus in narrow and then we think about generalizations from there. So if we think about the United States, many ways in which, especially in the early 1900s, politicians were trying to figure out how to stabilize society how to stabilize cities, rural areas, lots of industrialization, like lots of movement into cities, lots of challenges. And while there was marriage before, of course there was marriage before, but marriage didn't get politicized, encouraged, financial benefits being attached to marriage until the early 1900s. Why? Not because people didn't love each other before and not because marriage wasn't good before, but because there was a recognition that solid, stable unions meant something for local communities. So, and especially thinking back to, oh, well, I don't know, early 1900s, say before 1971, 1978, 1979, it was not legal to get divorced. You could petition for an annulment. You could request uh, for a special dispensation. So if you got married, there was something that was solid, committed, 
to you, your union, to the raising of children, to the transference of wealth, but even more importantly, in urban centers, it meant that you were committing to that space, right? And if we think about the rapid urbanization of the United States in the early 1900s, marriage, married couples meant that you had people who were committing to the local space. And politicians want commitment to the local space because that's a tax base. That is people who are reducing the likelihood of crime, right? All the things that we now can, you know, hindsight say, oh, I see why they continue to want people to get married and why there's this disparaging notion of people who have kids outside of marriage and all the things because of what we understand there have been encouragements towards people getting married. I will say in a book, it was, oh, good Lord, back in the early 2000s that looked at the effect of marriage in men's lives. It was a faculty member from Steve Nock from the University of Virginia. And he tried to understand in his book, you know, what happens to men when they get married? What are the benefits of marriage for men? And why are we trying to encourage people to marry? Interestingly, of course, we have historically thought we understood the benefits of marriage for women, which if you look at a number of other books that came out about the same time, there's, it's a really interesting set of critiques, but that's like going back to my comprehensive exam when I was in grad school. So let's not do that. That's let's, let's, let's go past that. But if we look at marriage and men's lives, what, what Steve Nock found was there was sort of this space of, he called it, um, sort of a grounding of men, giving them a space where they no longer had to compete against other men, that they could sort of be themselves. And this was you know, a book that came out in the early 2000s. So the data that he looked at were from the 1980s and the 1990s and looking at transitions, especially longitudinal data, what were men like prior to marriage and then what were their attitudes and behaviors like after marriage? So not just comparing unmarried and married men. If you really wanna look at the change over time, you have to look at longitudinal analysis. And in this case, what he found was there was a little bit of what we see when people are together for a long time, right? They sort of transition into a greater understanding of the other, being able to take the role of the other, being able to be more sympathetic and empathetic and be able to work towards common goals. Funny enough, those are good things outside of a relationship too. Being able to be sympathetic and empathetic is actually good to be able to do at work. Being able to work towards common goals, those are good things to be able to do at work. So again, if we think about the time period in which these data were, were, were coming out, where we're starting to see globalization and, and all the things, if we're trying to understand why marriage was good for men, it was why marriage is good for society, because at the end of the day, it's good for companies and good for competition. But Courtney, maybe you have a different take. Uh, it's not a different, it's sort of a piggyback, um, a both and. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, sort of right around that, that late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, you have a very romantic time, you know, you have the Victorian age, you have pride and prejudice and, you know, those types of stories. And that's kind of, you have in the popular culture, these stories of people marrying for love, which was just this preposterous idea. And those stories do exist prior to that, but they were sort of, again, it was, it was. I mean, mad fiction, you know, and in the early 1900s, we'll, we'll bring it back to here in, in the States, it was illegal for women to work. It was illegal for a woman to own property. It was illegal for a woman to live with another person who she was not related to. So for women in particular, marriage was survival 
You would not be able to have a roof or food if you weren't living in someone else's house with them. And of course, the times sort of designated that while you're living under someone else's roof who's providing for you, you should also cook and clean and do a couple other things. And as rights have shifted for women, as women have gained the ability to command a slightly almost equal. (laughs) We're seen as humans. Let's start with that, right? Again, without being able to vote, without being able to to get their own bank account, right? Thinking about, you know, the first piece of legislation that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, you know, working towards was the ability of women to be able to have a bank account without their husband's signature on it, right? For women to literally be seen as an, an adult woman, to be seen as an autonomous individual, Right. And then we can start talking about the rights that accrue to autonomous individuals. And as women have gained this autonomy over this last hundred years, this is where, you know, we had this sort of marriage bubble burst in the late 70s, early 80s, where you have this explosion of divorce, which has calmed way down. Divorce rates are way down from the 80s and people are postponing marriage until later because women are going to college and women are saying, oh, I don't need to get married when I'm 18 and do nothing but have babies my whole life nothing against motherhood, nothing against women who want to stay at home, but we have additional options, whereas before we did not. And so that is a huge part of how the expectations of whose roles are whose in a marriage and the purpose of marriage itself has evolved over a hundred years. Shannon, I want to go back to something you said that was really interesting. So you mentioned how marriage affects men is also good for outside of the marriage, right? It's also being more sympathetic, empathetic. But I'm curious how much of marriage is tied to capitalism because a lot of what we see previous to industrialization was these cooperative households where the men and women were, I mean, sure, I'm, I'm sure the work was still gendered in some ways, but you had a little more of an even distribution of work. And then, you know, industrialization comes in, men are out getting wages. And like you have said that women were allowed to get some of these jobs or any of these jobs, maybe there were very few, right? So how much are we tying what we're talking about marriage as an institution to capitalism itself, like how we think of marriage? Oh, it's a substantial amount. I mean, again, one of the key reasons why there are financial incentives, something along the line of 1,200 financial incentives in the United States that accrue to married individuals. This is one of the key reasons why there was the push for marriage equality in the early 2000s in the U.S., right? That that, that there literally, it wasn't just the ability to have a, a cultural symbol or a civil symbol or religious symbol of a relationship between two people, because one could do that before. But there were literal financial benefits that accrued. Thinking about taxes, for example, if you are married, you have a different standard deduction than if you are married and you file jointly, than if you were married and you file separately, or if you are not married, right? There is a different standard deduction. There are different abilities that you have to carry dependence. Things have changed in the financial industries because of the ways in which the world has changed. But again, if we think about the initial space of the sort of the push for marriage, there were pushes for marriage that were tied to finance. And there were benefits to the financial sector for people to be married. Ergo, there is absolutely a connection 
between how we have constructed enforced marriage and then implemented, quite frankly, propaganda on the side using our cultural mechanisms to highlight the value of marriage, to highlight the kinds of ways in which individuals are supposed to behave. Courtney, I sort of rolled my eyes when you said something about the roles that people play. Well, okay, then let's talk about this as a performance, shall we? Let's talk about the the cultural narratives that we internalize, the performance that we have about the courtship, the performance that we have about the the engaging in the the activity that is a wedding. For God's sake, it should not take an entire year's salary to have a ceremony, right? For people to go in debt, to have Mm -hmm. a ceremony that you will have maybe videos and pictures of, that there is a cultural symbolism to this that is signifying the investment, the financial investment into this space not for the couple. It's not for them. It's signifying for others the commitment that they are making, which again comes back to the why we see the financial investments into married couples and why you you get certain things or don't have to do certain things when you're married. But I do want to I want to sort of make one um, critical comment, Matt, about what you said, and then we can think more critically about some other pieces, especially around capitalism. I do want to remind us that when we're talking about women who were prevented from engaging in paid employment in the early uh, in the early 20th century, we're talking middle class white women, right? The non-white women, the immigrant women, um, they they were all working. It may have been in different kinds of jobs. So again, we can't ignore the intersexual nature of what we mean by marriage, right? And what we mean by the benefits that accrue to marriage, and then whose kinds of marriages were to be supported by this because for immigrant families, it depends on where they came from. If we're not talking about African-Americans from the South who are migrating to the North that we want them to be married, that wasn't even a part of the conversation. Hence also, if we're thinking about you know, loving the Virginia, the right to marry who you want, right? That, that for women and men to be able to choose their partner, right? That that was a legal barrier. In, you know, it's only been about 50 years, right, in that space. So, again, let's not ignore that it's not just about capitalism. It's about privilege that accrues to certain kinds of families that we're talking about. And so those investments were targeted intentionally uh, to certain kinds of families, hence the prohibition of certain kinds of marriages. I'm going to add to that two things. When I was working on this documentary, one of the subjects that we were going to talk to was a financial advisor talking about the very idea about how much money people spend on a marriage, which when I was working on away on this documentary, it was 2009. So we had only the, the last information we had was prior to that recession. So it dropped significantly, but it was something like $26,000 is what the average American was spending on their wedding and financial advisor that we spoke to said the average American wedding when the data was taken at about 2008 was around $26,000. And if the average couple would have invested that money into say the down payment on their house, that over the span of their marriage, they would have grown or accrued something like $800,000 in wealth. If they just 
didn't worry so much about the napkin rings, right? It's so funny how it doesn't make you any more married the more money you spend on that wedding. Um, it's a, it, they can be fun, beautiful days, but two couple friends that I have that are like the chillest, coolest, happiest couples several years later, uh, one got married in a courthouse uh, and the other couple did a drive through wedding in Vegas and it was them and they had me and my ex as, as their witnesses. Um, and that was it. And and then we went and saw Penn and Teller and like, <laughs> um, and then kind of getting back to that major point that you talked about, about marriage being tied to capitalism. And this is something that I really came to just over the course of working on this project and the life experience that I experienced from, you know, the last 10 years or so is that the purpose of marriage isn't about loving someone every day, because if you love someone every day, you're just going to be with them every day and you're going to be happy about it. The purpose of the legal process of getting married is in anticipation of that union ending. And we would all love till death do us part. We both die in our sleep when we're 97 years old and leave our children the millions of dollars and all of that, like at the end of the notebook, right? But that is a rarity. Typically, someone dies a few years before the other or there are divorces. And that's when marriage matters. It doesn't matter when you're happy and in love. You make the decision every day to be like, this person's great. It's when you're like, oh my God, I can't, the toothpaste cap, what is wrong with you? Why can't you, or any of the other mundane sort of day-to-day failures and disappointments that people who have been married for a long time and do love each other experience. And whether marriage comes to an end by a decision or by a death, that's when the legal status has any sort of significance. Because that's when, if you're not married to someone and you die and that person's parents didn't like you, you don't get to get their stuff, right? Your partner might've wanted you to have their stuff, but if someone has any problem with that, the state, can back up the next of kin, right? And so establishing power of attorney and things like that, all of that is is the status that marriage ascribes to a relationship. And what I sort of came to when I was working on this is that marriage is about the end and it's deciding if you want to take that step with someone, are you a person who will care for me and protect me. Like you promise to do that. That's what marriage is, is. I promise to care for you and protect you whenever it is that this relationship meets its end, which it one day will because death is, you know, inevitable along with taxes. So Courtney, yes. And right. So I just, re- I, I just read promises I can keep. Right. Um, Eden and Kampalas. And I, in rethinking uh, again about your really critical insight, right? That, that you, marriage is not about the today, it's about the tomorrow, 
right? It's about the, the, not the now, but the end. That's something that we as social scientists and maybe some financial planners um, get. But people (laughs) who are indoctrinated by the cultural narratives around marriage and around love and around relationships don't have that interpretation. And as a result, and again, this is, this is about both the creation of an extraordinarily impossible set of expectations that we place on individuals who are in marriages, especially heterosexual marriages, right? We can talk about lesbian and gay marriages as sort of a different space, if it, but the research there is, you know, growing. We've had lesbian and gay relationships, but marriage is, you know, barely a decade old at this point. And so that the kind of longitudinal research that we could perform is ongoing right now. Um, So we'll we'll sort of put that there. But if we're thinking especially about historically, the investments in heterosexual marriage, the enormous set of expectations, these cultural norms and, and values that we ascribe to women and men in these relationships are unattainable. And as a result, Uh, What we see are a lack of being able to think about the purpose of marriage from a critical perspective, from thinking about the structural phenomena that enables certain marriages to be beneficial versus others, that enables certain people to get married, frankly, and stay married. Um, Even though they hate each other, they live apart, they can financially do that, but you know, neither one of them wants to violate that prenup. And so they just live in two different houses and then they move along, right? That's a structural set of phenomena, right? We have created in the United States a beautiful indoctrination set of ideals that makes the failure of a marriage a personal problem and not a structural problem. That it really makes it, if we go back to C. Wright Mills and the sociological imagination, one of his key examples of what a personal problem and a social issue are is divorce, It's one of his first examples and it's like chapter one. And so thinking about how we've made this a personal problem as opposed to a set of social issues or structures that enable certain kinds of relationships or dissuade certain kinds of relationships, which frankly have the same benefit for people and and community that is tied to a set of capitalist narratives. It's tied to the ability to control others through those financial means, right, to control behaviors, and a a set of ideals that allow for certain kinds of belief systems to um, be difficult to dismantle. So I was raised Catholic, and marriage means something in Catholicism, but it also means something in many religions. There are these norms that are produced through religion. This idea of marriage is not so much what we think of in terms of what we've been discussing, essentially, right. like the tax benefits of getting married. It's a it's a vow, right? It's yep. something that yep. you're taking and swearing upon through the religious institution. And the religious institution recognizes this couple and it recognizes this bond. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about that because it, I certainly grew up thinking of marriage as one thing and not the other because of the religion that I grew up in. Sure. And I think sure. a lot of people do. Well, we can't ignore the fact that religion is is not disassociated from capitalism, 
religion is not disassociated from the history of power relations uh, in Western society. Any, any of us can point out many ways in which religion has been an arm of the polity. And so this is not a foreign concept, right? The ways in which that, especially if we look at the history of marriage in the United States, the ways in which particularly Protestant churches were invoked in that space, right? Um, Affording different kinds of fealty, right? Not necessarily a sacred vow, a a, a ritual, a rite in the eyes of God, um, which other religions would attribute it to, right? And say that this is what this particular relationship is, um, but instead a a different kind of um, making it more of a ritual, uh, in the anthropological sense, right, and in the, the bringing together of people as opposed to um, a, a religious ritual in the you know, in, in that sort of space. But I, I don't want to ignore the fact that culture is not just popular culture, right? Religion is a part of culture, and we see in different parts of the United States. We did in the early parts of, a, of the country's origins different ways in which people engaged in all sorts of relationship behaviors based upon the predominant religion of those who immigrated to that space. And so we can think about the Northeast versus the South. We can then think about the indigenous peoples who are already in much of the United States and the ways in which that our Western norms that we sort of brought over and then morphed into what is the United States now, how we used, didn't use, modified those um, those immigrants who came and especially the immigrants on the west coast uh, the ways in which that we came to understand their understanding of marriage as a, a solidification of um, lineage and that uh, your commitment to family is primary Right. And and I I will say, you know, full disclosure, currently living in Korea, understanding uh, what marriage means in the U.S. now in relief to in in sort of in that distinction. I now understand what I didn't before in looking at the regional variations in the United States based upon who the migrants were to those spaces. Asian migrants coming from a different again, a, a different historical religious background and their understanding of the purpose of marriage, the purpose of relationships, family in those spaces, that meant that it, that they brought that with them, right? And so we can't ignore that that's a part of culture, but yet we also see places with the highest level of religiosity, especially around Protestantism as the places where we also have the highest levels of divorce. So, Courtney, Bernie wants to say something. (laughs) I I was going to add that I I had to Google it because I wanted to double check my my dates. Um, But yeah, the Catholic Church did not adopt marriage as a sacrament until the 13th century. Um, And it was in response to Protestantism because the Protestants were getting married and people were and Protestants were saying, oh, Catholics don't care about this. And that's when they started making it kind of a kind of a thing. I I just want to say really quickly that one of the things I loved about Stephanie Kuntz's book is that the the idea of marriage was actually considered sacrilege because you were worshiping your your significant other as a false idol. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the the Catholics were saying, no, marriage is bad. Right around on that one. Yeah. Well, and even just like recently, I mean, we're having this recording on December 14th and it was like two, three, five days, a week ago, whatever. Pope Francis just said that infidelity is not that big of a sin. 
So that's fun and new, I guess. And you can trace these ideologies with, you know, who's in charge. Whoever has power is the one who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. And if the Catholic Church is saying, well, if you have a spouse, then you'll worship someone, a person more than you worship God. Oh, wait, no, now we're losing people to Protestantism because at least they get to get married and then they can have sex. Um, well, maybe we should like bring that in. So, you know, then in the 1300s, they say, no, we've got marriage. We're doing that too. And it is also, you know, important to note that marriage predates Christianity. Moses had a wife, right? Um, And that was a couple thousand years before that. And marriage existed in Hinduism, uh, which is like another 6,000 years going back. And so marriage has existed again in this sort of property, familial bond entity, not necessarily having to do with anything about how you feel about the person, but certainly political alliances and all of that. Um, that, you know, that has been going on in, in, uh, almost every religion. I don't know if, if there has been a religion where it was not observed. I was just going back over Helen Fisher, who wrote the anatomy of love. And she says something about like anthropologists have observed whatever the number is of different societies. And that there's evidence that there was love, whether or not it went with marriage is a different thing. You know, I, I do want to come back to a couple of, you know, let's, let's sort of bring that back to contemporary U.S., right? Why do we still hold on to something that scholars say is made up, that many people, when you talk to them, acknowledge is made up? Why do we maintain such a high esteem? Why is it that that we continue to have people loving marriage so much, they do it over and over and over again, right? They married and then remarried and then remarried and then re- Why is it that we love marriage? And that I think is a really critical kind of commentary, especially on the United States, because not only do we have the highest divorce rate, we have the highest remarriage rate of any developed country in, in the world, probably any country in the world, frankly, but that's, that's the stat that I, I seem to recall. Why? It comes back to, I think, Matt, your, your earlier point of it, yeah, connections to some other things like our uh, sort of our investments in capitalism and the ways in which the capitalism also is invested in marriage. I would also argue that we have done, a, again, a phenomenal job of convincing married individuals that if there's a problem, it's them, not the structure. And so if you got it wrong, it was either it was your partner. It wasn't the fact that, you know, it's hard in a marriage, not just relationships, but in a legal marriage to do certain kinds of things and sort of navigate one's life because of the the trappings that are attached to those internalized roles of being husband and wife, that you can't see the structure. You're just like, it was that person's fault. I'll find me another person. Or maybe it was my fault and I need to go to therapy and then I'll be a better person and I'll find someone else who's my soulmate. Rather than, and in, 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 in the United States, we've, we've done a really nice job of convincing people that it's, it, it's them, it's an individual uh, uh, phenomena, and um, that they can just keep trying it. Just like anything else, practice makes perfect. <laughs> Rather than a reframing of the institution as a social institution, that is framed and structured by other social institutions 
that have a vested interest in the social institution working the way that it does to include the ways that the internal rules of that institution are operating, not just the legal aspects, but it's not just the can women work outside of the home when married, which initially a woman who was single could work until she got married and then she had to quit, right? So there's now, right, there, there are different kinds of concerns. It's not just can women who are married work. It's let's move to the 1980s. Arlie Hoke Shields, the second shift, right? What happens when they come home? They have a second shift of work. Okay. Now that that sort of got huge play in the 1980s, the 1990s, the two, right? Time Magazine in the early 2000s. Um, this is one of the things that we talked about in, in our book, Why Who Cleans Counts? Why do we care about housework? It's because of what it actually, uh, that th- th- people care about housework. Like it sells. Look at the, look at all the stuff that you can buy to make your housework easier. Whose housework? The woman's housework. Why is housework women's work? Because we've still continued to work on these cultural narratives about the private and the public sphere, those connected to masculinity and femininity, and the ways in which that we perform in that space, especially again in the United States. What's very interesting, if you look at contemporary young folk, and by young folk, I mean like people who are uh, 18 to 24. If you look at the contemporary young folk and the recent surveys and qualitative analyses of their narratives, young women are much more skeptical of marriage and of that sort of um, having that kind of marriage. They want an egalitarian partner or somebody who's at least going to pretend to be egalitarian, but they really kind of like to get their careers figured out. They want to have their own autonomous sort of sense of self and then find a partner who's going to support them in that. And that'll take some time, going back to what Courtney said earlier, right? That'll take some time. Marriage rates are are low, not because divorce is high, but because we're waiting longer to get married. Why? Because women are more likely to get educated. And women who are getting educated are looking for partners who support them enabling the use of their education, which here's the other point. Kathleen Gerson's book, um, The Unfinished Revolution, in looking at what, what Gerson found young women are much more likely to be willing to forego marriage if they can't find a partner that meets their needs. That means they will not get married if young men don't start actively, not just professing that they want to be egalitarian partners, but actively demonstrating that. That means supporting the woman's career growth, being willing to relocate for the woman's uh, job right? Those sorts of things, being able to to commit to a long-term social exchange, which funny enough, Matt, you mentioned this is sort of the early origins of marriage, early origins of long-term relationships, the ways in which that social exchange was the critical crux of the household, long-term social exchange. That's what the young women, at least in Gerson's more recent book, um, have, or hers and and several others, um, have been focusing in on. So let's go back to Steve Nock. Benefits of marriage for men. Why are we focusing on men? Because the unfinished revolution is really focused on our inability to change masculinity. Um, and that has yielded a number of consequences. And I think if we look at contemporary U.S. Uh, understanding of what white masculinity looks like, uh, you can see some of the other outcomes of that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, if we want to talk about housework, there has been research that came out during the pandemic, essentially with both partners at home, that women are still doing the the load of of the whether it's care work or emotional work of managing the family. And I, my wife is going to listen to this. And so I will admit that because I've been in grad school, I have not been the best partner during this period, but I still do what I consider to be more than, than the typical man. <laughs> but yeah, it's something that I think uh, Pew and other places track is this very, very slow climb towards men doing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, but still not re reaching that that equal partner level. And so, yeah, the, the pandemic is one of those things where much like everything else, it has exacerbated that issue. It has exacerbated everything. And that is as one, you know, in relation to this conversation. And Courtney, I don't know if you wanted to say something. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I could just talk about this all like for a year and not be done. I'll, I'll read this stat that I pulled uh, earlier today, which was that remarriage is more common among men than women. Among previously married men, those who were either divorced or widowed, 64% took a second walk down the aisle compared with 52% of previously married women. So wages have stagnated over the years, right? And I think that generally the expectation is that both parties in the marriage will work full time at this point. Maybe, you know, because maternity leave and paternity leave are not <laughs> so well supported here. And maybe she'll take a year or two once, you know, you have the first baby or this, and then maybe she'll stay home until the kids are in school. But that's for people in a specific, you know, tax bracket and is not possible for many people to do. Yep. Right. And so, but like, even so the idealized, I think, image is that both parties in a marriage will work because we all view work as rewarding and substantively, you know, like yes, mentally. But, but, <laughs> right? Courtney, yes, but, right. That's not exactly accurate. Right. So we still have a non-small percentage of the population where men are absolutely affronted, offended, and bothered by their wives working. That, mm -hmm. that is an affront to their masculinity that they can't earn enough money to support their household. I would say you know, being mindful that there are a number of segments uh, of demographically of the U.S. population where the desire is not to have the woman working full time, even if that's what she wants. The husband doesn't want her to. And what we were able to show in our book is that if you look over time, men have the ability in couples that stay married to get their wives to shift their behavior to be more like what the husbands want. Mm -hmm. Right. And so herein lies again, a critical change. Women had much less likelihood of being able to get men to shift their behaviors to be what they wanted. We have to acknowledge that this is a both. And we have many Many women and men who still hold on to the belief, whether it comes from religion, 
from the media that they consume, from socialization, from their parents, that they truly believe that men work, women don't. If they do, it's, it's literally part-time jobs during small things, but it is an affront to the man's masculinity for her to be working outside of the home. Mm-hmm. And e- even if she has a degree, right, that, that it is an affront to him. Because it, it is getting in the way of his living up to his uh, set of expectations. There was a lovely book that came out. Um, it was right after um, Marriage and Men's Lives by Steve Knock. He, he, it was Nicholas Somebody. He came out with this really interesting analysis of, of men. Uh, you know, there was a lot of research in the 1980s and 90s. Scott Coltrane's Family Man. I mean, there are a lot of folks who were trying to get at why aren't men changing? They kept coming up with. Even the men who want to be egalitarian are running into these structural constraints at work that prohibit them from being egalitarian at home and from talking about being egalitarian at home because then their masculinity is questioned at work and then they reduce the ability to to transform into um, managers and, and move forward. Whereas we know that men get a daddy bonus, women get the mommy tax at work. We still see a daddy bonus, even though it's shrinking a little bit because not as many people get bonuses. But, you know, as wages have stagnated, we still see that men who are married and have kids have higher wages because there's the expectation that they have more mouths to feed because their wife isn't working. And so the question we keep coming back to, what, what's up with marriage? What's going on with contemporary marriage? I think if we're thinking about what's going on with the future of marriage in the United States, we need to rethink masculinity, period, full stop. We need to rethink what masculinity means, period, full stop. And that, that's a different podcast, I suspect. You know, if we really want to think about the future of marriage, it, it, even it, as a social institution and its relationships to other social institutions, we cannot ignore that women have changed, men are slower. And the social institution is going to adapt, right, as a result, which is why we've seen higher marriage rates among gays and lesbians than we have in some parts of the country, heterosexuals. There's the benefits, right, that accrue. There's a long history in the community of doing the, the relationship building and the focusing and, the, and all the things. And then this is the legal aspect that is being attached to this relationship. There's not the commitment to being wife and wife or husband and husband that is tied to these gendered norms. Note that it's gendered, not gender, gendered norms, that that's not, it's different, right? And so we need to think about masculinity, especially as it it sort of works in heterosexual relationships, but also how it's tied to that public sphere. And and until we can have a a true, honest conversation about that, and God help me, I don't know that that's ever going to happen in the U.S. in my lifetime, that we're not going to see marriage as an institution yielding true equality, both in opportunities. I'm not just talking about who's doing the dishes and who's cleaning up the cat puke on the floor. Not that I have any experience with that in my home, Um, but you know, where we actually have a sort of a rhythm in that space, because as a family sociologist, I'm like, I can't come home and live the stuff that I study because that kind of, right. Um, But in thinking about how we can move forward, we need to have these serious conversations Um, Mm -hmm. and and really talk about the nature of work, what it means to be an ideal worker and all kinds of work and those works that have allowed us to work from home during the pandemic, as well as those folks who've not had the opportunity to work from home during the pandemic. 
Um, what are the implications uh, for the future of work if we change what we understand masculinity and femininity to be? And as a result, as we've historically seen, a shift in the way in which that um, we self-identify, that we understand ourselves in relations to others, and then we co-construct a, a different form of relationships. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to end because that was such a great summary of just everything. <laughs> um, I'm really glad we had a chance to get together and do this. Thank you for asking me to do this. Shannon, I'm so glad that you were able to do it with us. Thank you for your patience with me. We have this time difference, so I know that this is a challenge for the two of you, so I appreciate your flexibility and patience with me. I want to thank my guests, Shannon Davis and Courtney Bell. This episode made it to the finish line despite a winter storm that resulted in a couple days without power and a very bored seven-year-old. This episode was written, mixed, and edited by me, Matt Sedlar. You can find me on Twitter at at Matt Sedlar or the podcast at at Sociology Ruins. I also recorded the remix of Paco Bell's Canon in D you've been listening to. You may also note it as that wedding song. Join me next month as Sociology Ruins something completely different. That's right, something completely different. <laughs>